I'm a you know third a third year undergraduate at Goldsmiths, and uh, uh, you know, but um, very proudly. So, um, but I'd like to thank you very much for the the local global uh, sort of. Uh, uh, the idea, the framework that you've offered. Um, <clears throat> I'll be traveling to America to show them what British cultural studies is about, you know. And this is something I'm definitely going to uh, uh, push for. Um, my point is really that <clears throat> you, you kind of gave us a, an idea of um, a globalization that is not necessarily cultural imperialism, you know. And the thing is, um, in the cultural studies uh, perspective, as the Americans here, we, we can be a bit too political at times. And I think that's a criticism that I have as well. Uh, you kind of developed that, and, and, and I, 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 that's just my interpretation. And so you, the way I see it is that, you know, you, yeah, it's not necessarily cultural imperialism, and yet it's still political. And that's very valuable, uh, I think. Um, my, my, my problem uh, today is um, uh, this idea that uh, Professor Mouffe uh, discussed, this distinction that she made between multiplicity and, and cosmopolitanism. And that's... Um, this may be a matter of, uh, of semantics, but, um, well, let's say multiplicity are the, are the pro processes that you, you kind of, um, you identify in the, in the global cities and that sort of thing. The, the way I see cosmopolitanism, and this, is, this may be a limitation, it may be a, a limitation that we cultural theorists have. Um, I see cosmopolitanism, uh, cosmopolitanism as uh, the cultural residue, um, which is uh, vital uh, to understanding cultural identity in the in modern day, um, this may have been a misinterpretation, Professor Move, but you seem to kind of um, push for the multiplicity yet uh, negate the idea of cosmopolitanism, and this I find problematic. Um, I don't want to um, cause any uh, sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering. I, I was wondering if you could uh, respond to this issue, perhaps uh, together. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, should we maybe see there? Two, three other questions, possibly related, but don't have to be, just two, and then we can have a more general response from the panel. I can see someone there. Um, thank you. Um, I had the opportunity of attending a um, conversation um, about the new, uh, the celebration of the Communist Manifesto, um, and um, David Harvey has written the introduction for this uh, new edition, and I was very lucky to be there. Um, and of course, it was all about the current crisis, of course. And one of the things that he said was that he seemed to have hope in um, what has been happening in Latin America. Um, which is where I happen to come from. Um, and I just, in, in, if, if we place that hope within this idea of places, uh, global and local, constituting each other, I can understand that we all have a concern for what the effect of this crisis might be in those places that seem to be more, more vulnerable. Um, however, I wanted to ask what role do you think that what is happening in Latin America, particularly in Venezuela or Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, might have to, what things could we learn from them? What role, what can they um, um, provide us in order to think about new geometries of power? So it's not just a concern for what they, the effects that they, that these places could endure, but what can they give us as an answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I can see a couple more at the back. Um, I have a question, and I will try to, to formulate it in English. If not, I will tell you in Spanish. Okay. Um, <laughs> how can you 
oh, yeah, how can you talk about changing the narrative from economic crisis to political crisis if, if they are intimate related? I mean, economic now drives politics. I just wanted to interrogate a, a space between something that Chantal said and something that Doreen said, which is between Doreen's celebration of the resurgence of, of mutualism and the dependability of various forms, yeah, in little ways, but also Chantal's dismissal of some of the political projects of, of exodus and non-hegemony. Because I think actually in those spaces of exodus and non-hegemony, whether in Chiapas, in Argentina, or through the European social movement centres and other social centres movement, and other spaces like that, new experiments with new forms of mutuality have come about over the last 10, 15 years. Okay, thank you. Um... Uh, who would like to start? Chantal, you had a direct question, didn't you? Yes, like yes. To? And I also will want to address the last one, which, which was he, he also, you know. Um, well, as I say, you know, cosmopolitanism is so polysemic uh, that it, and it's also become very trendy terms. So every, every, there are multiple forms of cosmopolitanism. In fact, recently I've just heard about uh, uh, what they call local cosmopolitanism, which seems to be really an oxymoron for me, but, but you know, so everybody wants to be cosmopolitan. So I don't really under, know what, what maybe your understanding of cosmopolitanism, you know, is, is uh, uh, not a total contradiction with multiplicity. But here, I was, uh, and let me uh, just say, I am not at all critical of cosmopolitanism, if we understand by that a sensibility or even an ethos, you know, of openness to, 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 to the world, to the other, yeah, no problem with that. What I find very problematic is some uh, political project, you know, uh, uh, of uh, cosmopolitanism, which are designed by political theorists. Uh, and my main problem with those, those, those views uh, I won't give any names here, uh, is, is that, um, in fact, all in different ways, they tend to advocate some kind of universalization of Western liberal democracy. When they think of, you know, a, a cosmopolitan <coughs> world, and a, it, it will be on the basis that it is the form of, of course, to be absolutely honest, when they refer to liberal democracy, it's not really existing liberal democracy. In, in most cases, it will be some kind of social democratic liberal democracy. So it's because most of the people are on the left, you know, so they are very well intentioned. I'm not putting that into question. But their idea is that, uh, well, the, 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 uh, our model of, of uh, liberal democracy, if it was really implemented, you know, that is the best model, is the universal model, it has got some specific take on rationality, and this is what, you know, all the people in the world, if they were, you know, able to reach our level of moral development, would accept, you know, us, the, 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 their uh, uh, institution. And this is what I'm, I'm, I'm putting into question, because I think that, you know, it, it is at a, a, 
And, and this is central into political theory. Most of political uh, theory is trying to show that liberal democracy is really, you know, the best uh, form of democracy. And so there is de definitely no place for a multiplicity. For I, I uh, personally am in favor of what I call uh, uh, the idea that democracy, I'm not saying that democracy is something, you know, on, only uh, good for the West, but I think that the democratic ideal, if we understand by that, you know, the rule by the people, could be inscribed differentially in different cultural, uh, 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 civilizational contexts. Uh, and that, for instance, I, I know there are people who are trying to develop what they call a, a, an um, Islamist form of democracy, a Muslim form of democracy, a, a other, um, you know, Confucian form of democracy, and, and I'm very much in favor of that, because I think that it, the, the world is a pluriverse, it's not a universe. So this is uh, uh, the kind of, of democracy, of, of uh, cosmopolitanism, I find really uh, very problematic. Concerning the question of uh, my critique of Exodus, well, I mean, you, you, you made reference to Argentina, and I think that's precisely the best example I will use uh, against uh, uh, the, this, this form of, of politics, of not engaging with the institution, you know, uh, not wanting to, to get, get uh, you know, dirty with, with working with the state. And, uh, we know uh, uh, what happened in Argentina with the movement of the piqueteros at the uh, uh, beginning of the, you know, uh, the, 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 this uh, century. They were very strong. They managed to uh, bring down the, the La Rua government. Uh, so they, they, it, it was, of course, an incredible moment of, you know, getting uh, imagination, doing things, except that uh, uh, their uh, motto was que se vayan todos, no? They, they must all go away. Uh, yeah, they, uh, so, well, when uh, the, 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 the La Rua government fell, then there were uh, uh, elections, and of course the piqueteros, it's absolutely no way in which they could even influence the election. I mean, things turned out quite well because finally uh, Kirchner uh, uh, won uh, imagine it would have been uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, menem, that would have been a total catastrophe. But Kirch and Kirchner turned out to be much more left than, than people would have dreamed of. So uh, um, things are much better in Argentina at the, uh, the moment than, than they were before. But the piqueteros, with their strategy of, you know, exodus, desertion from the traditional institution, that, that clearly showed the, 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 the limits of that. Because if you really want to... to construct a different society, you need to uh, engage with the institution in order to transform them, not just say, well, you know, we are leaving that case and others. And I, I, I think that's the best example of, of the limitation of that kind of strategy. I'm not saying that one should not um, uh, also try to create new uh, form, but always, you know, in uh, 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 trying to create them as re-articulation of existing institutions, not simply trying to, you know, do, do that outside. But it's very important to address the actual geometries of power, transfer them, re-articulate them, and uh, not having this strategy of desertion. <laughs> Globalization could have created a cultural imperialism. I but one thing, I think, makes it impossible. I, back in 1964, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a book speculating about all the possible futures we faced. He had a chapter in which he posited the question, we will either develop instantaneous um, travel or instantaneous communication. 
and you only need one of those. And of course, as we know, we haven't got Star Trek beaming me up, Scotty. So what we have got, though, is instantaneous communication, and it embraces billions of people. Even in sub-Saharan Africa, somewhere between 20 and 25% of people have a mobile phone. And whereas, I think, it, after the collapse of communism I, and all the hunting and stuff about clash of civilizations um, and the implosion of the Japanese economy, and I remember, I can't remember who wrote it now, a book about the, the 21st century will be American and so on. And this just isn't happening. It isn't happening because all over the world, hundreds of millions of people, mainly younger people, are, ha are, are developing a mix and match approach to culture. They're taking what they want you're beginning to see Bollywood changing Hollywood. Because all over the world, people are making their choices through their iPods, their Blackberries, their mobile phones, their computers. I mean, the International Olympic Committee are really terrified because the average age of the people who watch it at television, which is where they make their big bucks from the, the networks, is now 55 years old. And they, they want to make sure that Come the games in 2012, there's all these young people sitting in, in, watching it in their computers and interacting and so on. And that is the way it will develop. And you just can't get a cultural hegemony anymore because people are going to choose what they want. And it's not like, you know, in the, the late 1940s where 45% of productive capacity was in the United States of America and it had the power to impose. I mean, they had to pass around the bloody hat now to be able to invade Afghanistan, for God's sake. That, those days are gone. And I think it will be the openness of cultures. I mean, I think Japan's implosion had a lot to do about the intense levels of xenophobia that exist in that society. The, the, the failure of Tokyo to rival New York in the way London was able to is because only 2.5% of the people are foreigners. You can't have a great world city which isn't awash with people from all the way around the world. And the, the test will be for Mumbai and Shanghai as they grow, are they going to be genuinely multicultural? And I think they will. And so, I mean, I, I'm really optimistic that I don't fear a globalization creating a new cultural hegemony. I, and, and you actually look at the fracturing of what people watch on television, the dozens and dozens of options and all that. The days when, in Dorian and my generation, Everyone sat at home and watched the same bloody programme and came in and talked about it. And they say, oh, gone. There is no power on earth, even a successful, eventual superpower of China, capable of imposing that. It's just gone, and it's gone because of Arthur C. Clarke's prediction about instantaneous communication. Once you've got that, and you can't block it, and you can't control it, you can't censor it, and all that will break down, we will choose the future we want. One of the few last standing uh, places where people sit down and share a collective uh, space is the weather forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Just, no, I'm, being in this context, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Well, I just want to say one thing about the relation between politics and the economy. And I want to put it in this way. Here we have an implosion and a general view that the financial sector can't have quite the same dominant role in London that it's had before. So what is to be done instead? What are people to work at? What are they to produce? What are to be the main content of economic activity? And how do we even think about it? 
It's quite difficult to think about because the way the government thinks about it is always in terms of aggregates. Quantitative easing, so there'll be more money, there might be a bigger deficit. We have the big magnitudes, but the content of what is to be done is below the field of decision or even thought because that's to be left to the market. Now contrast this with what Ken and Doreen and Vella and Robin Murray were doing in the London Labour plan when they thought it was absolutely essential to grasp and name the kinds of things that people did in order that one can even begin to make decisions about them, like how should waste be disposed of or how should the environment be dealt with or what about the development of creative industries. So there was a precedent in the work that they did then about at least trying to map, name and describe the fields of economic activity we have in order that there could be some possible decision about them. We're not even at the point at the moment of having a description or even the possibility of a description within the orthodox economic discourse. And without a description, it's quite hard to have a politics. Yeah, I was hoping to squeeze in a couple more questions, um, but I think we have run out of time. I'm very sorry to say. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, and I hope the discussion will continue if as many of you as possible can uh, join us at the reception afterwards. Uh, please recall what I said about the cloakroom moving. If you're leaving now, go out the front way. If you're leaving later, it'll be at the back. Just like to uh, thank uh, all our panelists, and I think Doreen would like to say word. a few closing words before you all gather uh, uh, your things. Doreen. I need to carry on the responses to the questions. So, um, on the politics and economics, I mean, yes, of course, is there, a, there is a clear relation between between the two. But I absolutely agree with with Michael. I mean, the way in which the economic crisis is being faced at the moment in the popular media, in the dominant discourses, is through a narrative which is within the economic and which is on the whole from the right. And what we need to do is to re-articulate what is going on at the moment in a political discourse which challenges more deeply the economic things that are happening and turn it into a political crisis about the tone of society, about the way in which we do live together. That goes much, which goes beyond the economic, because that in the end is what is, is at issue. And finally, on the, on the globalization and cultural imperialism, there are a number of questions that related, and I just wanted to say one or two things. Um, there's a, there is occasionally, sometimes also, a cultural imperialism on the left. I mean, this is not to disagree with what Ken said, but there's, when I say I'm working in Venezuela, the immediate thing is that people judge it. Ah, oh, but he's a dictator, isn't he? Or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, and that's a kind of immediate judgmentalism, that we know the model here. We know what's a good politics. And we will judge what's going on in Venezuela by what we have here. And I'm not saying there should be no judgment, that there should be no evaluation. But on the other hand, what's happening in China, what's happening in Venezuela or Bolivia, comes out of long, long histories and battles that they themselves are fighting that we shouldn't just simply and very briefly judge by criteria which have come out of our history and our battles. And so um, the first thing I'd say is that we must get away from that kind of Im implicit cultural imperialism of the left and learn to learn because I do think what's going on in Latin America is enormously important, and it's potentially even more important if we try to learn from it. Um, the way in which my concept, as it were, power geometries was taken up there has been in order to try and establish participatory democracy, 
which takes democracy right out across the country to regions whose voices have never been heard before, to poorer barrios in some of the big cities whose voices have never been heard before, to try and build, and this is in non-elective communal councils, which are places trying to form collectives, another form of power. So not only the geometry, in a sense, the geography of the power being changed by coming from poor barrios and, and regions in the Orinoco or the Amazon, but also the nature of the power, which is participatory and collective, as opposed to the individual voting uh, kind of power that comes out of representative democracy. So I, I learned a huge amount about what power geometry meant by that. I also learned, to return to the discussion with Oliver, about the temporalities of power, because one of the difficulties in what they're trying to do is that while Chavez's power is very quickly established by law, by the fact that he's the president, the power that comes from the base takes donkey's years, people who've never known how to speak before, people who never thought they had the right to have a political voice, learning to participate, learning collective decision-making, that takes years. And so within this new proposed geometry of power in Venezuela, there are multiple temporalities, and sometimes they're dislocated one from the other, and I'd never thought of that before. So being involved in Venezuela, I've learned enormously about something I thought I was suggesting. And the final thing I'd say is that... I think one of the things that's important about what's going on in Venezuela and the rest of Latin America is that it does involve that relationality of place from which we started. There's a very strong determination to have an outward-looking politics of place. And I think I was probably, well, one amongst a very small number, if not the only person arguing in favour of Ken's initiative for the agreement between London and Caracas. And, and I thought that was fantastic demonstration that you don't have to have neoliberal relations between places. You can have equal exchange between places apparently in such different positions within the inequalities of globalization that places don't have always to compete with each other. They can cooperate. It stood for all of that. And it is no accident that after that strange and eerie pleasantries that you and Boris Johnson exchanged immediately after the election. The first way in which Boris Johnson broke that peace was to abolish the agreement between London and Caracas. He knew that politics of place beyond place and ones that challenge the current hegemony really matter. They have symbolic and real political potential, and that's what we should be getting on and doing more of. Thanks, Inma. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.